Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Peck. as we've been in this series on the Holy Spirit. And as I have been considering scripture and I've been thinking through the Spirit's connection in my own life, uh, I uh, often think that the way I see my kids interact with me as father, uh, there's something there to learn about how God sees us as well. And one of the things I notice as I play with my kids, especially as they were younger, uh, playing hide and go seek was one of our games that we played, as many of you probably as well. You probably maybe you can go back to an image in your own mind as a parent or a grandparent all the way back when they were younger, or maybe your own memories yourself of playing. And I, rem- I, I was just watching this week as my kids were playing with their cousins. And I noticed that uh, uh, when you're really young, you think that if, if you can't see other people, they can't see you. So hide and go seek early on isn't necessarily going and hiding. It's making sure that your eyes are covered so that no one can see where you are. But we learn as we grow up that that's not actually how the world works. It's not just what we can see that allows others to see us, that we're not hidden as much as we think we are. And all of a sudden we grow an awareness that others see from different perspectives. And our eyesight grows, our vision grows. And as we age, we begin to lose a bit of that vision as things go on. But I think part of what it means to be in tune with the Spirit of God and part of the work that the Spirit does in our lives is to help us see more clearly. And that's what today's sermon is really all about. It's about our vision. It's about what we see and what we don't. And it's about asking the Spirit to continue to transform our vision. That's what we need. Uh, We see this over and over in Scripture. I want to point to some of those places today where when God touches a person, when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, they begin to see more clearly. Blindness goes away. Vision is more clear. I think this is one of the ways the Spirit works in our lives is to wake us up to the reality of the way things are. I think there should be a marked difference, actually, between the way we see the world and the way those who don't have the Spirit of God see the world. And as we read the Gospels, we see this, don't we? Jesus made blind people to see. Mark chapter 8 is one of those stories that stands out in my mind. It's a story right before Jesus has this interaction with Peter about who he is, that he's the Messiah, and Peter doesn't fully understand that. But right before that, if you'll remember, there's a story of a healing, and it's an odd story of a healing, right? It's this guy who doesn't see clearly, and he has an initial healing, there's spit that goes into this story that somehow is a part of the healing story that's there. He sees people walking around like trees and finally a second healing comes to see more clearly. But probably the most 
uh, memorable story to me in all of Scripture about coming to see more clearly is the story about Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 is where the story is found. In fact, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open and turn there with me. Probably the most famous story of vision correction comes in Acts chapter 9. Saul is on his way to Damascus to do what he's been doing, which is persecuting Christians, people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And on that road, there's this bright light that appears and knocks Saul off of his feet. And for three days, Saul was blind until he receives the Holy Spirit. And it's as if the Holy Spirit is the very thing that changes Saul's ability to see the world more clearly. Listen to this in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. Story reminds us that when we come in touch with the Holy Spirit of God, our vision becomes corrected. Which brings me to another odd story about blindness and vision in the Old Testament. If you're opening your Bibles and turning there, turn with me if you would to 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings 6, the people of Israel are in a battle with the Arameans. And these Arameans have been a trouble to them. And it's not actually a fair fight in the story because the prophet is a guy named Elisha who is getting some kind of insider information that the king of Aram is really upset that he keeps getting. Elisha is the prophet of Israel who followed the great uh, uh, prophet named Elijah. And Elisha is close with God and God shares his secrets with the prophet Elisha. And this unfair fight happens, and it makes the king of Aram furious. And at one point, the king of Aram assumes that one of his men must be sharing the battle plans with the the people of Israel. But one of his officers says, no, my lord, the king, it's Elisha the prophet who tells the king of Israel all our plans. He even knows the words you speak in your own bedroom. A little disconcerting. So the king of Aram commands his men to go out and capture this guy named Elisha. I want you to watch what happens in this story. Pay close attention. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 14. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. And they went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. Elisha has eyes to see things the rest of the men of Israel can't see. So we asked God to open the servant's eyes and he, he can see that there are flesh and blood armies that they can see. 
But beyond that, there are hills full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha who are ready to fight for Israel. And I love this juxtaposition in this story, right? Because Elisha prays for God to open Israel's eyes at the very moment that he prays for the others to be struck with blindness. But my question this morning is, does this kind of thing happen in our world? Is the Bible just a book of bedtime stories for our children, or is it an accurate description of the way the world truly is? Are there spiritual forces at work in the world that we must have eyes to see? We'll talk more about that in just a moment, but I want to begin with prayer this morning for God to open our eyes as we come to these stories once again. Oh God, we, uh, we see in different clarity this morning. Some of us are new to this journey of faith and we have fresh eyes, eyes that have not been marred by experiences of frustration or difficulty with you. We're starting our journey and things seem so clear and God, I give thanks for that part of the journey. Others of us, God, we've had scratches on our lenses. We've walked with you a while and we begin to wonder over time if you really did answer prayers that we were so sure of in the past. We wonder if you really do act as we want you to act or that you promise to act. God, I pray this morning, wherever we find ourselves in the midst of our vision being clear or unclear, in the midst of our faith being bold or maybe just hanging on a limb, God, I pray that you would open our eyes today, that we might see clearly your work in the world, and that we might see clearly who we are in your sight. I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and so that our eyes might see clearly. And we pray this prayer together in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. There's an assumption in our culture that Christians are closed-minded. But I want to suggest that we're actually more open-minded than many secular humanists who claim to be open-minded. But before I get to that discussion, I want to talk about the Bible. See, we claim as a people to be a back-to-the-Bible movement. But I wonder how many of us truly believe the stories we read in Scripture. Do you really believe these stories actually happened? Most of us don't. Uh, now, we say we do, but if one of our non-Christian friends asked us if demons really exist, like in the stories in the Gospels where Jesus cast them out, we might say something like, well, this was written in pre-enlightenment time before they had the diagnoses that we have today. After all, we live in a post-enlightenment world. We have the scientific method. We have cures for diseases. We've created a cell phone with more information on it than the Encyclopedia Britannica that many of you bought years ago. We live in a developed nation. And the Enlightenment was a good thing. It is a good thing. The Enlightenment handed us a number of ways of understanding the world that have worked on us and influenced us for several hundred years now in very positive developments. But these understandings have limits because once you understand the cycle of precipitation, you begin to lose wonder for how God brings the blessing of rain. Once you understand how viruses run their course, you begin to lose the wonder about how God brings healing to our bodies. The world actually becomes more closed the more we've entered into this world of the Enlightenment. And with the Enlightenment, we have shut God out of the world. Because why do you need primitive gods to explain natural wonders when you can explain with science exactly how those natural wonders emerged? 
The Enlightenment shaped our vision, our way of seeing the world. It shapes our imagination. Recently, the last few years, I got the chance to be with an Anglican priest and author who made me rethink the way I see the world. He talked about how we've forgotten that the world is enchanted. That's the difference between our imagination and the ancient Christian imagination that he described. He told me that the ancient Christians were able to imagine a world in which anything was possible. They knew that God was closer to us than we are to ourselves, that the whole world is dripping with the glory of God. That's the world the Bible describes. It describes an enchanted world where all of creation rejoices. The mountains clap, the rocks cry out, the heavens rejoice. Do we really believe that? Or is that just Bible talk? Because as I hear Christians talk about the world today, I hear two ways that we often describe the world. One way is to describe God as something like magic. We pray to him in heaven, and every once in a while, he does an occasional miracle, touches into our world, and then leaves to go somewhere else. The other way that the world's described often, not usually in these words, but really in the reality, is more like deism. That God once was active in the world, spun the world into existence, and isn't involved in the creation anymore. So either God punches a hole in the roof of the universe somewhere and tinkers around, or God is somewhere else altogether. But that's not the world Scripture describes, is it? In the Bible, God is intimately involved in his creation. In Acts chapter 17, it says he is not far from any one of us. And the danger of many of our conversations is how we strip God out of the world he made, not by using the Bible, but by using a certain kind of enlightenment worldview that has very little to do with the ancient Christian imagination. Do we really believe there are demons at work in this world? Do we really believe there are spiritual armies in the hills waiting to come to our defense? See, I believe that our answers to those kinds of questions determine just how open-minded we really are. Christians who believe these kinds of things aren't closed-minded. Now, there are plenty of us that are closed-minded, let's be real, but... But I think when we see the world and we imagine the realities that could be outside of it, when we think about empiricism and all that it can't fully describe in our world, there's more going on. There's more mystery than we like to imagine. One of my favorite authors said it this way. In our world, we often hear people talk about being open-minded, about how religion can be stifling because of how closed-minded it can be. Now, it's true that religion can lead people to be incredibly closed-minded, but the terms open-minded and closed-minded aren't usually applied accurately. To believe this is all there is, and we are simply a collection of neurons and atoms, that's being closed to anything beyond that particular size and scope of reality. But to believe that there's more going on here... That there may be a reality beyond what we can comprehend. That's something else. That's being open. If you're open enough to believe there are other forces that may be at work in the world, then you may be interested in what the Apostle Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 6. In fact, open there with me, if you would, to Ephesians 6 verse 10. It's a passage I read actually in the last series we did together. I think it's important and vital for us to understand this in the midst of a world that is so divided and is drawing up battle lines all around. Listen to Paul's words describing the real battle we face. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let me read though verse 12 again. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul sees clearly enough after his conversion to know there's a battle going on in the world. And I'm not talking about a physical war, a conflict that's being fought in the Middle East. There is a spiritual battle that's continually being fought. In fact, the spiritual battle is the very thing that animates the physical conflicts that are going on all around us. Paul is clear. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So let me just stop there for a moment. Here's where we get this wrong, and here's where our vision is not clear enough. Anytime that we draw up lines and decide that an enemy has flesh and blood on, we've already lost the battle. We've already mistaken the fight, Paul says. If your enemy's with another human person, you're not seeing clearly. Because we don't have human enemies, at least not as followers of Jesus. Our enemy lies in the spiritual realm. There are spiritual forces behind every physical conflict. There are powers, principalities, rulers, and spiritual forces of evil working against God's purposes in this world. And many of you know this. Because as you've walked through your life, as you've found struggle, as you've struggled against things, it's really hard to name the evil sometimes that you're up against. The language we try to describe, the battles that we face on a constant basis, it was like I was up against something larger than any kind of human. As if there was some kind of force against me. It's interesting the language we use. John Steinbeck wrote one of the great American classics, Grapes of Wrath. How many of you actually read that book before? You made your way through it. Good job. Steinbeck wrote his book while staring at the economic effects of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl in the United States. And in chapter five of his classic novel, Steinbeck provides one of American literature's most moving accounts of the work of the powers that Paul describes in Ephesians 6. In the scene that I'm about to read, the owners of the land are called on by the bank to confiscate their land from the tenants who've worked it. And after some discussion, the owners get to the point and inform the tenant farmers that they will have to get off the land. One tractor, it turns out, can do the work of a dozen families. When the farmers protest that they're poor and have worked the land for generations, this is what the owners have to say. We know that, all that. It's not us, it's the bank. A bank isn't like a man or an owner with 50,000 acres. He isn't like a man either. That's the monster. Sure, cried the tenant men, but it's our land. We measured it and broke it up. We were born on it. We got killed on it, died on it. Even if it's no good, it's still ours. That's what makes it ours. Being born on it, working it, dying on it, that makes ownership. 
Not a paper with numbers on it. We're sorry. It's not us. It's the monster. The bank isn't like a man. Yes, but the bank is only made of men. No, you're wrong there. Quite wrong there. The bank is something else than men. It happens every, uh, that every man in a bank hates what the bank does, and yet the bank does it. The bank is something more than men, I tell you. It's the monster. Men made it, but they can't control it. I think what Steinbeck's pointing to is actually this force behind things. And if you've ever worked in an institution, if you've ever worked in a university or school, if you've ever worked in a church, any kind of gathering of people, it's interesting how what we build becomes larger than us and our ability to maintain it and control it. And I think these are examples of the powers and the principalities. Are you familiar with these kind of forces that Paul's describing? In short, the powers comprise that something larger than ourselves within which many of us feel trapped and against which many of us feel powerless, whether we hate or fear or worship that something. The powers create the sense that we live in a machine in which everyone is caught, but that no one owns. Anyone who's worked closely with the cycles of poverty that occur all around us in our world understand this. Millions of people are homeless and Ending homelessness is not a simple task because there are powers and principalities at work to keep people on the streets. Or maybe you've seen the national deficit recently. Doesn't it all seem so big, so insurmountable, like it's beyond our control? But the powers are not just at work in big systems, governments, and corporations. The powers and principalities can be at work in our individual lives as well. In fact, Jesus battled those powers daily in his world. He encountered people who were inhabited by evil spirits, by demonic influence. But the question is, do you still believe that happens? Here's what I believe. I believe that Satan is real. Satan is crafty. And Satan works in the way that he can cause the most fear and destruction in a particular culture. And I believe he works in different places in different ways to accomplish that agenda. In the post-enlightenment world of 21st century America, I don't hear too many stories about demon possession. We have medical and scientific diagnoses for everything. In my small, closed world, I've grown up skeptical about demon possession. I'm much more comfortable naming demon possession things like multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia, mental illness. But then I hear stories from missionaries who spent time in third world countries who I know and I respect share about seeing demons at the foot of their beds. I don't know quite what to do with it, but I know that I trust that they're sane people who are lovers of Jesus. One missionary told me about living in Venezuela and having a student come to him seeking his advice on an experience he was having. And the student said, most nights when I go to bed, I have an experience where a dark figure enters my room pulls me out of my body and I go down a tunnel and my missionary friend said, let me, let me stop you right there. Can I finish your story for you? As you're flying into the tunnel, you pop into a beautiful world with this figure as your guide. And as the dream goes on, the scene goes to black and white and becomes more and more grotesque. And then the person who was escorting you becomes more grotesque and begins to pursue you and persecute you. And just as you think you can't take it anymore, you feel yourself jerked back into the tunnel and slammed back into your body. Is that accurate? 
By that time, the student was staring with eyes wide open and said, how did you know that? And my missionary friend said, that's the way it often goes with demonic visitation. My friend prayed with that student, let let the spirit know he was no longer welcome to visit the student, that he was a Christian. The power of darkness had no power over him. And that student no longer had any visitations. That missionary friend is now a professor in one of our colleges tells this story once a year in one of his classes. And over the past 10 years in the States, half a dozen students have come up to him and said that they've had that same vision and that same experience on a regular basis. This stuff is real. But let me ask you, if you were Satan and post-enlightenment 21st century America had determined you were a mythic character that doesn't actually exist Would you show up and prove to them otherwise that you were reality? I don't think so. But in a third world country where spirits are assumed to exist, do you think Satan would show up and manifest himself in clear and obvious ways? You better believe it. I do believe that spiritual warfare is a reality in our world. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know this just as strongly. The power of evil has no power over your life. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of when Jesus is your Lord. Which brings me back to that story we started with in 2 Kings. We need the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see these spiritual battles that in our culture often go unstated and unseen and aren't talked about. The war is waging all around us. It's being waged for every one of our souls right now. But there is good news. The war is actually over. The battle has been won. God wins in the end. From an earthly perspective, evil can seem so pervasive, can it? It can seem unstoppable. Watching the evening news would seem to support that idea. But from a heavenly perspective, Satan rages on earth not because he is so powerful, but because he is so vulnerable. Satan desperately rages on earth because he knows he is already lost and he wants to do as much damage before the end comes as Satan possibly can. And that's why I think gathering here on Sunday mornings is so crucial for us to do. That's why I think the songs that we sing, the stories that we tell out of Scripture, the rituals that we do with communion and in our baptism, all of these are vital. You know, we often talk about it this way. At least this is how I was taught growing up. In a few minutes, we're going to leave and we're going to go back into the real world. And I think that's nonsense. What we're doing here when we tell these stories, when we engage in these rituals, when we shake each other's hands, when we pray for one another, when we tell the story of Jesus, when baptism happens to remind us of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, what we're doing is reminding ourselves that this is actually the real world. We're recrafting our vision from the way it's shaped by our world to see things falsely, to be able to see them correctly in the way God intended them to be. And yet each week we leave these doors and we risk that we might forget. We risk that we might lose our 2020 vision. 
And that's why we gather back and why we'll gather back again next week. Is it's easy to lose sight of what evil is and what good is. It's easy to lose sight that there is actually a battle. It's also easy in the midst of our battles that we fight to lose the angels and the chariots of fire that sometimes are easy to not see around us. But like Elisha, and like Jesus, and like Paul, we're trying to be reminded over and over again that God in the end has won. That the power of evil has no power over those who are Christ. And that the blood of Jesus is the very thing that saves us, not just in the end, but that protects us in the meantime. And so each week, my prayer is that we would leave with a clearer vision of the world. And that's why we come back every week. We come back to this building every week, hopefully so that we might see more clearly. So I want to encourage you this week to pray the same prayer that Elisha prayed in 2 Kings chapter 6. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we may see. Let's pray. God, I know when we bring up uh, the evil one's plans and schemes that we stir up a whole lot of trouble that the evil one wants to stir up this week. Sometimes it's easier to just not acknowledge these battles. Sometimes it's easier to talk about the physical world. That's the way that evil would like it to be. But this morning we call attention to the fact that there is a battle going on. And we know how this battle ends up. And yet in the midst of things, God, we, we face that evil, that struggle all through our lives, God. Right now, I'm, I've just been imagining as I've been preaching this morning, the battles that are being faced in each of these sections and each of these rows and the lives of each one of us, we are fighting battles that almost no one knows about. And God, that's why we need a community. That's why we need small groups. That's why we need people who are in our corner, who know our story, who we can admit our battle to, that we can fight together arm in arm with so that we're not alone to be picked off by the evil one. So God, I pray this morning a prayer you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Make sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.